I have the pleasure of being joined by Jared Dillian, uh, publisher of The Daily Dirt Nap. Jared, welcome to Forward Guidance. Great to see you, man. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. I'm really glad that you made it uh, on my program. Thank you so much for doing this. There's a lot I want to... It's been a while, Jared. There's a lot I want to ask you. Yeah, we got to catch up. Yeah, yeah. The, I, the, the, the rotation, you know, we're seeing a lot of heavy selling pressure in the you know, speculative growth stocks that don't have profit. Maybe they don't have revenues. They've done really poorly. Meanwhile, the value sector, that's really been holding up the index. So I want to ask you about what's going on in the stock market. Um, but be- before I do, when we get into that, and also gold and Bitcoin, uh, Jared, let's talk about the Federal Reserve. I was reading some of your uh, notes from December, I think December 13th, exactly a month ago, from the Daily Dirt Nap. And you had some very prescient thoughts about the Fed. You said, about the Fed. You said, I would not be surprised to see some outsized moves at the Fed. Use your imagination. They might get it done in two meetings. And you had a particular view on the sentiment that the, the Federal Reserve, they are somewhat easy to predict because they react to, to sentiment. Uh, what did you mean by that? Well, you know, the Federal Reserve is government employees, you know, and I used to work for the government. I worked for the Coast Guard. And, you know, the government, you don't really have a P&L. So people don't really get in trouble when they lose money. But when do people get in trouble at the government? They get in trouble when they are embarrassed, when they lose face. Okay. Um, So that, you know, I've been saying this for years, that drives all of Fed policy decisions is the fear of embarrassment. Okay. So they screwed up. You know, they left rates at zero for too long and they did QE and we got 7% inflation. Um, And now there's political pressure building on the Fed. I mean, there's actually Democrats in Congress that are going to the Fed and saying, please do something about inflation because I'm not going to get reelected. So they have lost face. They are embarrassed. So the point is, is that you know, for a very long period of time, they made one error. They Their monetary policy was too easy. And now they're in the process of making another error, which means that they're going to tighten monetary policy too fast. And that is what's happening. It's causing some strain on the market. And I'm not, I'm not saying that the Fed should not hike rates or that they should slow down because they should absolutely do this fast. Um, it's the right thing to do. But they are going to make an error of the second type, and they're going to cause some dislocation in the markets because of their aggressiveness. Now, we priced in about three and a half, four rate hikes this year. Uh, I think we'll get that at a minimum. I think we could get more. I mean, and when I said use your imagination, like, you know, at the March meeting, it's possible they could do a 50 basis point rate hike. I don't think it's likely. You know, but it's within the range of possibilities. They could do a 50 basis point rate hike. They could do a 50 basis point rate hike anytime in 2022. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think by the end of 2022, we could have, it's possible we could have Fed funds at one and a half percent. Yeah. And, and so you said that you think the Fed is going to be as aggressive in 2022 as they were complacent in 2021, that is have, going to have a, uh, have consequences for risk. And by risk, you mean risk assets in the stock market. Do you think that uh, you know, rising rates will derail the, the huge bull market that we've had in 2021, uh, since 2020? And also, Jared, do you think that hiking rates will be effective in fighting inflation? If 
people are right that a lot of it is due to the supply chain. You know, it doesn't matter if the Fed funds is at 3% if there aren't enough uh, ships in the world to, to bring all the, all the goods, uh, you know, from, from t- Taiwan and, and China uh, to, to where it needs to go. Um, so, yeah, will, will, will hiking rates, will it, what's the impact on risk assets, number one? And number two, what's the impact on inflation? I mean, I think at a minimum, stocks are going to go down 10%. And you might say, well, that's not very much. But a 10% correction would be pretty painful, and we haven't had one for a while. Uh, maybe 15, maybe 20, but I think at least 10. Um, and then we'll see what happens. You know, I mean, I'm trying to, you know, this is all about the reaction function of the Fed. And um, if their actions cause uh, chaos in the stock market, then they might pull back. So it's kind of hard to predict out that far what they're going to do. Um, But, yeah, it's possible. I think it will be effective in in fighting inflation. You know, you're talking about the supply side, but, you know, really what rate hikes do is they affect the demand side. Um, You know, and if you read back about what happened in the late 1970s when Volcker was Fed chair, like, they knew that in order to stop inflation, they had to cause a recession, okay? Like, the, the, the recession was necessary in order to stop inflation, and it had to be a big recession. They really had to slow down economic activity. So they knew that going into it, and they did it anyway. They took their medicine. So I don't think that this Fed has really thought this through, that in order, so you know, CPI is seven percent. So let's say in order to get it down to three percent, they actually need to cause a recession. I think they're afraid of causing a recession. You know, so I think this is a different Fed than what we had in the late nineteen seventies. You know, so maybe, you know, maybe they they begin to hike and stocks are down ten to fifteen percent, and the VIX is at thirty five or forty, and it's it's getting you know kind of kinky out there. And they say, we're going to pull back. So it's kind of hard to predict. The only thing I can say for certain is that they don't want to cause a recession. But that's those are the options they have. You know, they can either have 7% inflation or they can have a recession. Those, those are their two choices. And if they go in the middle, they might end up with both. And which door do you think they'll go into? Door number one of inflation or door number two, recession? Both of them are unwelcome. But if they, as you say, they are getting a lot of pressure on the inflation front. Uh, what do you think? I think it's going to be door number three. I think they're going to. I think they're going to do it half ass, and uh, and stocks will be down ten to fifteen percent, and you know inflation will come down to five or something like that, and you know we'll we'll it'll it'll, it'll really be like the worst possible outcome, which is always what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and. and um, you had a tweet where you said if the Federal Reserve right now did a 50 basis point hike, you, you asked people on Twitter, folks, what do you think? I want to turn that question to you. What do you think that would, would have? I, I think that if the Fed did an intermediate 50 basis point rate hike, um, stocks would probably be down 7 to 8% in two days. But the point, the point of that tweet was, you know, the Fed has to have the ability to surprise, right? And the Fed, it, like, I don't know what's happened at the Fed in the last 20 years, but, you know, in the late 90s, the Fed used to routinely surprise the markets. And, you know, they crashed the spoos for like 2 or 3%, and then the market would get over it and everything was fine. And for some reason, this Fed has like this fear of like surprising the markets. 
But I think people would be surprised at the reaction. Like, I think it would be a, a pretty big shock initially, but ultimately I think it would be okay. Yeah. Uh, I was speaking with a, a former senior Fed trader, and he said something very interesting, that the reason that the Federal Reserve over the past decade, two decades, has been very reluctant to uh, uh, you know, ha- ha- hike rates and uh, tighten monetary policy is because inflation has been so low, so they want to stimulate demand uh, via the wealth effect. You know, when your stocks go up, your, uh, your house goes up in price, you feel wealthier, so you spend more money. And he said, that is not what's going on now. Now we have too much of the wealth effect. We need, the Fed wants to, needs to deflate assets. Do you agree? And well, how, far, how far do you think this goes? Well, the first part of that statement I think is pretty shocking that somebody at the Fed would admit that they were trying to use the wealth effect to stimulate the economy. I mean, what he's what he's essentially saying is that, you know, what the Fed has been accused of for the last 20 years is causing inequality because they made asset prices go up. And he's basically saying, yeah, we did it on purpose, you know, which is terrible. You know, I, 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 that's, I can't believe he said that. But isn't it, um, wait, wait, Jared, so he, he's a former senior, uh, he, he doesn't work there anymore. Um, but also, isn't it sort of, it's not that shocking. Like a lot of people know that that is the feds. They, they sort of say it, uh, you know, in between lines, but they're li- maybe a little bit coy, but it is kind of generally well known, right? The, the wealth effect, the fed, they've talked about that, right? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Like to me, for, I don't think, it doesn't seem to me like the Fed is trying to engineer a drop in asset prices, you know, because there's, you know, especially in an election year. I mean, there's political implications to that. If somebody's 401k goes to goes from 300,000 to 200,000, like that's, you know, in an election year, like that's kind of a big deal. So uh, I'd be kind of surprised. I, I really think they're focused on, um, not asset price inflation, but actually goods and services in the CPI. And so you think that hiking rates will be effective? If so, uh, do you think we've reached the high in the CPI? You have been one of the most vocal inflationistas. You've been absolutely right. When everyone was on Teams Transitory, you know, I've, I've spoken to you over, you know, over the past year, and you were firm. Inflation would continue rising. We went all the way from you know 1.5% to 7%. Do you think that we'll, we've reached peak inflation or, or not? I think we're actually close to the peak. Um, and I think that, you know, the rate of change is slowing. Okay, so we went from 6.2 to 6.8, and then we went from 6.8 to 7, and PPI actually dropped a little bit. So the rate of change is slowing. Um, I think that this quantitative tightening or this jawboning is, is having a, a, a very slight effect on inflation. So, yeah, I would be I would be pretty surprised if CPI got up to, got up to eight or nine this year. I think it's going to moderate. I think it's going to moderate in the sixes, maybe get down to five, uh, get in the five handle. But um, you know, in the, it, now in the long term, now if you look at this from like a super cycle standpoint, like I mean, I think that we're 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 in an inflationary environment, and it's going to continue for ten to twenty years, and I think that inflation will ultimately go much higher. Um, but in the short term, I think it's going to moderate this year. Mm. And what is the catalyst for your longer term view on inflation? Well, it's really, it's, it, it gets back to what we were talking about with the Fed. It's really sentiment based because they just don't have 
the courage, the political courage to cause a recession, to engineer a recession, to do what it takes to actually stop inflation. Okay. Cause we, it's within our power. Like it absolutely is. I mean, a lot of people think it's just this, some exogenous event and there's nothing we can do about it. We can actually, we can stop it. Like within six months, we can stop it. We can raise fed funds to 3%, invert the curve. Uh, we have negative 6% GDP. We go into a recession. Inflation goes away. Like We can absolutely do that, but I don't think anybody wants to do that, which is the basis for my statement that I think in the long term we'll have higher inflation. How does that inform your investment framework? Because what, what's so odd to me, Jared, is that a lot of the vanilla inflation plays, when you think about it, uh, last year – didn't really work. Gold uh, didn't really work. You know, energy uh, that worked uh, a lot. You had some reflationary opens, but uh, you know, I- inflation it, it it didn't inflate the assets that one would think that they did. Uh, how do you, how do you how does that shape your you know your framework going forward? So I'm not really doing anything different than I did last year. I'm still investing for inflation, and really, what I'm looking towards is the next cycle because I'm not. I'm not really nimble enough to say, okay, in 2022, inflation's going to moderate. I should buy tech or do whatever stupid. Like, I just, I'm, that's too hard to do. But, um, you know, I, but on a five to 10 year time horizon, like one of the things I'm looking at now, uh, which I'm going to make a decision on pretty soon, is, um, you know, very cheap commodity producers in emerging market countries that pay big dividends. Like that to me is what I'm most excited about right now. That is very interesting. Oh, I also I thought of the asset I was thinking of, which was bonds. If inflation is very high and rising, you would expect bonds to sell off. But actually, since March, we saw the yield curve flatten. Uh, it, how do you how are you thinking about bonds at this juncture? Well, I got to tell you what happened at the beginning of the year surprised me a little bit. Um, you know, rates backed up about 30 basis points. The curve flattened a tiny bit, but mostly it was a parallel move in rates, which I was not really expecting. What I thought would happen was that tens would stay around 150, 160, and the front end would come up and the curve would flatten significantly, but that actually didn't happen. I'm a little bit surprised at the move in long-term rates. And one thing that, that really sticks out is the bear market in maybe small cap growth stocks, growth stocks that trading at a very rich valuation. Uh, there's a chart, you know, I'm sure you, you've seen it, you've probably made it, we can imagine your head, which is like uh, Berkshire Hathaway relative to ARKK since March of 2020. The outperformance is very stark. How, you know, how have you made, what have you made sense of the bear market in those sort of speculative growth stocks that have, have very nice narratives, but like the cash flow isn't there yet? Well, you know, a lot of, what drives the market these days is quant trading, okay? So you have these factors that kind of come and go, like we had a reopening factor and we had a stay-at-home factor. Well, we have an unprofitable tech factor, right? So you have these tech companies that have no earnings, and this is all the stuff that's in ARC, and that's the stuff that's been getting killed for the last, really for the last nine months. I mean, when ARC peaked, like back in early 2021. Um, I think that trade is past halfway over. Um, I think it's a little bit too late to be jumping on and shorting these names. Um, so I'm kind of on to, to like what's going to happen next. And on the long side, what do you think is going to happen next? I know talking about factors, one thing you're very constructive on is the value factor, which 
has really underperformed over the past 10 years. Uh, And, you know, in 2016, 2017, there were people saying the value factor, the value factor. Why do you think this time is is different? Because I, I note that you said that once a factor starts to dominate, it stays for a long time. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, in my career, I've seen a handful of really big style rotations from growth to value and value to growth. Um, and I think we're at the beginning of one right now. I think it's been happening for a couple of months. But, um, you know, I mean, the analog for this is what happened after the dot-com bubble. Um, you know, it, you know, growth pretty much peaked in March of 2000. And then for really for six years, uh, value outperformed massively. You had a huge period of value outperformance. And it's funny because I remember this was like in – 2003, 2004 at Lehman Brothers and the stocks, you know, we mostly had a hedge fund client base. Okay. So by around 2003, you know, I would hear these orders like on the cash desk and stuff and people were buying U.S. Steel and they were buying Phelps Dodge and they were buying Cleveland Cliffs and they were buying Steel Dynamics and all these like value commodity names. Um, and that got really hot for a period of time from like 2003 to 2006. Um, so I think we're going to see something, maybe not the same, but similar. And what do you think was the, the, the catalyst for that value rotation in the early aughts? And, you know, do you see similar signs now? Well, the catalyst for this rotation is interest rates for sure, right? I mean, it's it's just math. You know, when you're looking at, unprofitable tech, you basically have this company that doesn't really have any revenues or earnings. And then it's some terminal value out 50 years in the future, which means it's like it's trading like a 50 year zero coupon bond. So it's very sensitive to interest rates. So when interest rates start going up, these unprofitable tech names go down. And you know, the money has to go somewhere and it goes into value, which pays big dividends, which means it has a short duration, you know, so money goes from long duration to short duration. Jared, you do note that there are some good businesses out there that are getting indiscriminately whacked. Uh, some are SPACs, some are not. Some will go to zero, but some of them will be good to scoop up and they could have uh, 50x returns. So, But you don't think we're there yet, right? No. I mean, we'll get there. You know, uh, I don't think it's going to be a complete repeat of the dot-com bubble. I mean, you know, after the dot-com bubble, there were some tech names that went down like 99% and it started trading below a dollar, right? And that was a huge opportunity. The only the one I can think of off the top of my head was Akamai, right? Like Akamai Technologies, which I think in 2002 went down to like 60 cents a share. And then three or four years later, it was trading at like 55 bucks a share. I mean, it was, it was a huge opportunity. So, um, you know, I, and what I said was absolutely true. Like, you know, a lot of these names do have to go to zero, you know, the D-SPAC, SPACs and the ARC names and stuff like that. But this, at the end of this, if if it doesn't go out of business, it's there, there's going to be pretty big opportunities, you know, and it's really just dumpster diving. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and do you see any attractive things in the dumpster now or, or no? It's too early. Too early. Okay. Jared, in your book, Street Freak, you actually note how you wanted to express a view on interest rates via the euro dollars market, but you didn't work in euro dollars. You worked in the, the index arbitrage desk uh, trading SPUs and NASDAQ. So you expressed it via, via SPY. So you went to the stock market to express a view that you had on the euro dollars market, euro dollars being interest rates. 
Can you talk to us about how stocks can, you can express views in stocks in order to express a view in in interest rates? Because that's kind of what what you're saying is that the value factor is going to be resurgent because interest rates are, are going to rise. So I guess can you tell, tell us a little bit about that. And my question would be, you know, if you have this view on interest rates, why not just trade interest rates? You know, interest rates are hard to trade unless you're doing it in futures, and then you're dealing with you know, pretty big amounts of leverage and it, you know, the P and L can get pretty scary. So I really, I don't, I don't like just trading rates. You know what I mean? I like trading derivatives of rates. Um, and you know, if, if, if you were to, you know, even if you were just to buy IVE, which is the large cap value ETF, like if you can just buy it and like, not look at it for five years, I mean, that could be a two to four X return, maybe not four X, two to three X return. Um, so, and by the way, in the book, basically the trade that we put on was, um, we did a spread in deferred month S and P 500 futures. So like we basically bought the second month and sold the third month and we did it like 14,000 times. And if you do a spread in futures, it's basically an interest rate trade. You're trading forward rates. So basically, we got short forward rates in a massive way, and that's how we ended up making money on it. So, oh, okay. That makes sense. So it, because it was, it was futures, there was a lot of row. Yeah. 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 There was a lot of row. Let's put it okay. that way. Yeah. Nice. Nice. By the way, I, I don't just know that off the top of my head. I know that from the book. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, Jared, what are you constructive in, in the value universe? I know there's something you did like a lot. You rode the energy wave up, like, let's say, X, something like XLE. Uh, I think you got out, out of it sometime early fall, late, late summer uh, for reasons. I think there was a sentiment issue maybe you can tell us about. Um, but but uh, you know, why? when I think of value, I think energy. Like, it's the most value sector. It's the most value of all the sectors, right? It's, it's tra- trading very cheap. Everyone hates it. Um, it's pretty big, big and ugly, and you could maybe you can tell us about big and ugly. So, uh, yeah, just flesh out your theory on value, and then, and then tell us about energy. Well, you know, energy is value for the most part, but it's not my favorite way to play value because there's a, there's a lot of other factors affecting energy stocks, including the price of oil that you really have no control over. So the type of businesses I'm looking at are, you know really just donkey business models that have kind of been left for dead uh, with, you know, PEs below 10, dividends above 5%. Um, you know, I like t- tobacco stocks is a good example. Like, you know, I, I I'm, I, by the way, I'm not in any tobacco stocks, but, um, you know, they've actually had a pretty, pretty big rally in the last couple of weeks. I mean, they're up about 10 or 15%. Um, and that's a terrible business, you know, that like people, I mean, it just over time, people are going to stop smoking. Like their business is already down like 70% and it's going to go to zero. So it, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of these stocks, but it is, they are the perfect expression of value and dividends, you know? So those types of trades will work in the short term. Mm. And when you say value stock, are you mostly looking at the price to earnings ratio? I know other people maybe look at uh, you know enterprise value to to EBITDA, um, and then also are you looking at the sort of extreme value sectors? A few shipping stocks trade to tra- come to mind, which are tr- you know trading at forward earnings of something like like two. Obviously, they have a lot of risk. 
Yeah, those are. I mean, what I'm looking for is value stocks that are not affected by macro bullshit. You know what I mean? And like shipping stocks are a good example of stocks that are just affected by macro bullshit. Like, you know, I, I just I, I just want stuff where even if the valuations expand slightly, it's going to be a, a, a big return on investment. You know, so I'm really looking at um, industrials, staples, uh, to a lesser extent, consumer discretionary, stuff like that. I mean, look, like very fashionable to beat up on tech you know people have been trying to short tech for the last 10 years or whatever but you know i actually think it's starting to work right now mm. and uh how are you thinking about gold gold and, and bitcoin as inflation hedges well uh so you know all people have really stupid discussions about gold because you know they say like well inflation is 7% and gold's not working or inflation 7% and bitcoin's not working like first of all like there is a correlation between inflation and gold and bitcoin but it's just over a very long term time horizon and you do have periods of time where it just doesn't work you know i mean you can go back to the 1970s and see that so um, I, I think the price action in gold is actually pretty positive right now. I think it's pretty constructive. It's acting better than it has in a while. Um, and it's totally counterintuitive because, you know, for all the years that the Fed was printing money, gold went down, which didn't make any sense. And now interest rates are going up and gold is going up, which doesn't make any sense. So I've sort of given up on trying to, like, make sense out of I, gold. It, it, it trades very technically. Um, I, I just, I, I don't waste any time trying to think about it. It's gold and gold related equities are about 30% of my portfolio. And I think it's going to be a decent year for gold. And I think it's going to be a decent year for me. What about Bitcoin, Jared? Cause I, you, you were early into Bitcoin. Uh, you got out as people were getting very bullish. The sentiment was very bullish. I think maybe very early in 2021, January, February, I don't remember exactly. Uh, but now I think you're getting more constructive on it. Uh, what, what's going on? What are your views? So uh, back about three or four months ago, I started to build a portfolio of cryptos that were not Bitcoin. I don't own any Bitcoin, but I do own like seven or eight different blockchains. And, um, and that hasn't worked out so well. It's been pretty tough over the last couple of months. But the way I looked at it is, you know, it's funny. I had a discussion with a very smart guy. Um and he's like, look, it's really simple. We are in an inflationary environment. So what do you want to do in an inflationary environment? You want to be short bonds and long gold and crypto, you know? And when he put it that way, I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, you know, I didn't own any crypto at the time, but I was like, eh, I should probably own some crypto. You know what I mean? Especially in the context of, you know, for the previous 24 months, like gold didn't really do anything and crypto went up five to 10 X. And I said, well, you know, I mean, maybe, you know, if I have, you know, 30% of my portfolio in gold, then one or 2% should be in crypto. And by the way, you know, the market cap of crypto globally is 2 trillion and the market cap of all investable assets is 700 trillion. So it really doesn't take much for crypto to go from 3 trillion to 4 trillion to 5 trillion and you've got a pretty good return on investment, you know. So that's that was really the thesis behind it. Uh, and I tried to buy, you know, mostly blue chip stuff. I wasn't buying, you know, shit coins or anything like that. Um, 
And the portfolio is actually, you know, it's actually outperformed Bitcoin on the way down uh, by a little, you know, so it's actually done okay, but it's, it's, it's still been a disappointment. Yeah, right. I remember this, this view that you had that it was time to go long all the cryptos, not all the cryptos, not, not shit coins, as you say, but non-Bitcoin cryptos. Why do you think that non-Bitcoin cryptos would outperform Bitcoin? Well, it has to do with increasing financialization. And I think the narrative in crypto is dominated by these Bitcoin maxis, you know, who look at some of these other cryptos and they say, you know, they're like, okay, you can buy Ethereum and it's all fun and games until Vitalik issues a bunch of Ethereum and dilutes you, right? But I started to think about it and I'm like, well, I mean, that's kind of true of any stock. You know what I mean? Like any stock you own can do a secondary and issue more stock and you get diluted, but it doesn't stop people from buying stocks. People buy stocks all the time. You know, not everything has to be a hard asset. Not everything has to be gold or Bitcoin. I mean, so you can buy blockchains that produce cash flows. I mean, there's blockchains that produce cash flows. So, I mean, there, so what this is, is it's, it's an increasing financialization of crypto over time. Whereas in the beginning, like 99% of crypto was just Bitcoin. And over time, Bitcoin is going to play a smaller and smaller role and the rest of the crypto universe is going to get bigger and bigger, which doesn't necessarily mean that Bitcoin goes down. It just means that you have, you have these other cryptos that do things, right? They're, they actually have utility, which is very much like stocks. And how are you, are you gauging the current sentiment? I know things were getting very frothy very early in 2021. Was that perhaps what made you pull out of that market? Uh, and, you know, since that, it seems like right now people are extremely bearish, way more bearish than uh, after the huge crash in, I don't know, May. How are you, are you th thinking about sentiment and to what degree is, you know, is that informing your, your view uh, when taking positions? Yeah, sentiment is pretty bombed out. Um, you know, I, I do think it's going to get a bump in the short term. I think Bitcoin will probably get back above 50,000. 50, um, by the way, what we really need... And this would be this would be the financial innovation of the 2020s. Now we have a Bitcoin ETF, but it's Bitcoin futures. Imagine you have a crypto index ETF, right? So it's literally just like VTI. It's like the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund. It buys every crypto on a market cap weighted basis. And I think this would be attractive to a lot of people because, especially me, because I don't really have the expertise to be buying individual, you know, big coins and trying to build a portfolio. Like I just want to buy the blob. I just want to buy the whole thing. You know, if there was a crypto index ETF, I mean, that would get like 200 billion in assets. Mm -hmm. And how are you thinking about the cyclicality of crypto? You know, for most of crypto's history, it had these huge waves up and these huge waves down. But it seems like this time could be different because you know, if, if the 2017 pattern held, right now we would be in the middle of a, a huge bear market uh, since the highs of, of February, March of 2021. Uh, you, you know, do you, do you think that the sort of feast and famine cyclicality of cryptos, the hype cycles, if you will, do you think that is, you know, largely a historical thing and no longer at play? I think that's going to diminish over time. And one of the things I've noticed about Bitcoin 
is that it's starting to react to macro factors, right? It's starting to react to payrolls. It's starting to react to CPI. It was, you know, it, it, it ripped a couple thousand bucks on CPI the other day. Uh, and I think that's interesting because, you know, if you go back a couple years ago, it really didn't react to those sorts of things at all, which means that it's getting drawn into the financial system and it's being, it's being traded by people other than just pure crypto guys. I mean, you have lots of hedge funds that are trading Bitcoin, you know, so... Um, I, I, this is part of the financialization that I was talking about. So I do think the volatility is going to go down over time. I think it already has a little bit. Yeah, that's so interesting. How, how do you think, what are Bitcoin's vulnerabilities and strengths to the macro environment? For example, rising rates, generally good for banks, you know, uh, falling interest rates, you know, very good for, for growth stocks, as, as we talked about earlier. What, what does Bitcoin sort of like? Um, you know, are rising rates, uh, on the short end, the Fed, is, is that a threat to Bitcoin? Uh, it is. I mean, but really the, the problem with crypto is that it sort of falls into this unprofitable tech risk bucket with ARC and all that stuff. So um, it's really it's a risk asset, unfortunately. So what that means is, you know, a, a lot of people went into crypto because they wanted to diversify away from stocks and bonds and commodities and stuff like that. And now it's becoming undiversifiable because it's trading with risk, um, just like any other asset class. So it's it's gotten a little bit more difficult. I mean, that was really a motivation for me, you know, for getting back into crypto. It's like, oh, hey, I, I want something that's not correlated to anything else. Well, surprise, like it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so weird. Like Bitcoin, it trades like ARKK, but also like XLE, you know what I mean? Because I think it doesn't like sh uh, rising rates on the short end. That's for sure. Now, like nothing, almost very few stocks do, but it does like rising long-term bond yields. So it seems that when growth is picking up and inflation is picking up, you know, that is, seems like the perfect sort of uh, environment for, for Bitcoin. Whereas ARKK and those growth stocks, they do well when, you know, inflation is, is quite, quite low. And also, Jerry, if you look at, I just, didn't realize this until yesterday. Bitcoin's huge 2017 bull run happened when the Fed was raising rates, right? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so just talking about the macro sensitivities, which assets do you think are most vulnerable to rising short-term rates? Because I've, I feel like, Jared, you know, and you, you, you understand the narrative, so you'll, you'll totally get this, is that I feel like whatever asset people like, that's the asset that is immune to the macro headwind, the rising rates, and whatever assets they don't like, they hate on, that's the asset that is vulnerable. So if you talk to a growth investor, they're like, oh, uh, rising rates, that's horrible for cyclical stocks, it's going to cramp growth. Whereas if you talk to a value investor, they're going to say, oh, uh, it's, it's, the spec, it's the spec growth stocks that are most under threat. What do you think? I mean, I really, I really think it all comes down to quants. I think it comes down to factors. You know, and I'm not an expert on quant investing, but I'm sure if you went to some of the big quant hedge funds, you know, they have factors. You know, they probably has a factor that you know benefits when interest rates go up and goes down when interest rates go up, and you know, it's just um, it, it, and they're they're probably trading those baskets. You know what I mean? Like, so he, here's. This is sort of like a bigger complaint about like market structure in general. You know, the market is so dominated by quant investing that, it, you know, it creates these distortions, but it also creates these opportunities. I mean, one of the things that I've been looking at is biotech. Okay. 
So biotech is down almost 50% from the highs, right? Which really doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And the biotech community is like, holy shit, like this, you know, what the hell is going on? Um, but I think the main reason that's happening is that, you know, when you have quants and they're building these factors, they look at biotech stocks and it looks like unprofitable tech, which, you know, by definition, a biotech company, if it doesn't have a working drug, is unprofitable tech. So it gets lumped into this basket and it's just been getting shit on for the, you know, for the past 10 months. And but like, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense. So. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean because you know when I run stock screeners, I'm like looking for stocks that have a price to sales ratio higher than ten. You know, very expensive stocks. I always you get just a flood of biotech stocks, and I'm like, I'm not looking for this. So you have to specifically exclude it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's totally true. Yeah, it's totally true. Uh, so, so, Jared, what I always appreciate about your analysis is that when you don't know something, you don't you don't bullshit. You're like, yeah, I, I don't know. It could be this. It could be that. I was recently reading a post of yours where you said, I don't know what's going to happen to interest rates. I don't know what's going to happen to inflation. And you talked about how there's a lot of certainty in the macro community and in macro forecasters, whether it's people on Twitter or, or people who just want to express a view. Uh, what are can you can you speak to why certainty can can be bad in investing? Well, two things. So, I mean, if you're if you're a macro pundit or forecaster, like certainty is a very good thing, you know, because, you know, people flock to people who sound very sure of themselves. You know, they they speak with conviction and they say this is definitely going to happen. It's going to play out exactly this way. And they say this with a lot of confidence. And that's that's very charismatic. Like people are drawn to that. They gain a lot of followers and I'm not, I'm not saying they're bullshitters. They probably genuinely believe that, you know, this is what's going to happen, but I just, you know, me personally, I don't have that level of certainty about anything. You know what I mean? Like I really, you know, I just, I just don't know. Now there are occasions when I see a setup and I get very, very high conviction about it. And you've been reading the newsletter for a while. Like, you know, if I get very high conviction about something, like I really pound the table and, you know, that's like energy in 2019, right, or 20. And I'm just like, you know, I, and I pound the table on it. And those, you know, nine out of ten times in those situations, I'm right. But, you know, most of the trades I'm putting on are very low conviction. And, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of edge. And I tell people, like, look, I just, you know, I don't know. This is what I think. I think this could happen, but we'll see, you know. So I think, um, you, know, from a, you know, from somebody who's in the forecasting business, I think, I think that has, like, hurt my business, you know, which it, it, my intellectual honesty has actually probably hurt me because, you know, I don't, e I don't even talk about stocks on Twitter, you know, because I just, I just don't know. Yeah, Jerry, you're, you're really falling behind, man. <laughs> you got you, What you got to do is tell 50% of your audience bond yields going up, tell 50% they're going down, and then whatever happens, that 50% will think you're a genius. Yep, that's an old game. Yep. Yeah, uh, Jared, one thing that's really struck out to me is that even though we've had this huge, chaotic, roiling rotation within the stock market, SPY, the indices, have held up remarkably well. 
What are your thoughts on uh, passive indexation and SPY? You know, there are a lot of critics saying that it causes market distortion. But here you are saying that it's so hard for people to actually have a view, and often they're wrong, and they, they size way too much, they're way too confident. I'm thinking if, you know, if I had just bought SPY, you know, if, if an investor had just bought SPY instead of going into this and going into that and believing this narrative, believing that narrative, they would have they done all right. We've, we've gotten accustomed to this environment where you have five stocks that are 25% of the index and they lead the index higher and they never go down. I mean, it is possible that, you know, Microsoft was down 4% the other day. So it is possible that they call them the generals, you know, that some of these generals will, you know, like have a correction, um, which will lead the index lower. It hasn't happened in a long time, but it is possible. And then I think people will probably not make so much noise about indexation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And do you have a current outlook on the mega cap growth names you know apple was just a huge outperformer in in uh december berkshire is doing really well now in in january well, berkshire's value that's value yeah you know? yeah definitely uh jared you had a article or opinion opinion piece recently in bloomberg about how the sec should oversee how uh, private companies raise money uh could you could you outline your view because i've got a few questions about that well the piece was about so basically What's happened is is that companies are staying private longer, okay? And they get these very large private valuations. And we have like 950 unicorns in this country, like, you know, $1 billion valuation private companies. And they're not going public. You know, and the SEC looks at this and they say, well, this is bad for individual investors because, you know, for example, Stripe is like a $190 billion market cap. You know, Stripe's going to go public at like a $300 billion market cap, and then there's really no room for growth, which means that the only people who made money on it were the VCs, you know, and their LPs. And how do you become a limited partner of a VC? Well, you have to be a rich guy or know somebody. You know, so there's been a lot of, pe- a lot of very wealthy people who have made a lot of money in private companies, whereas individual investors are kind of getting screwed. And the number of public companies keeps going down and down and down. So what the SEC is trying to do is they're trying to impose regulations on private companies, reporting requirements and stuff like that, to make it more difficult for them to stay private. They're trying to provide a disincentive for these private companies to stay private so that they go public so ordinary people can buy the stock, which is a laudable goal. Like, I agree with that. But I just disagree with the method. So what I said in the piece was that instead of making things harder on private companies, they should make it easier for companies to go public. And what that means is is getting rid of a decent amount of Sarbanes-Oxley. And, you know, Sarbanes-Oxley was passed in 2002 with all these accounting checks and stuff like that. As soon as they passed Sarbanes-Oxley, the IPOs just went to zero and it just stayed there for a long time. So it's very expensive for a company to go public. So instead of making it harder for them to stay private, let's make it easier for them to go public. Yeah, I've got a view. It's so interesting. I've got a view, which is I think companies going public and, you know, not a lot of them end up making money. They issue equity. They issue equity to investors. It probably is good for society because you get a lot of capital to go into these uh, 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 speculative ventures that end up improving quality of life and and economic growth. Amazon comes to mind. But then there are. It it may not be 
great for the investor because there are so many companies that go public and just do not do well at all. Like, I feel like, how have you made of these uh, the, the SPAC, huge amount of SPACs that went on the scene late 2019, excuse me, 2020, 2021, and they, they have just performed really, really poorly. And, you know, if you had invested, if you were a retail investor who invested all of your money in SPACs, you would have done uh, really poorly, right? Like, what, what do you think of uh, the, that whole SPAC sector? You know, the, the, the types of companies that went public under SPACs were very speculative. Um, and they were not companies that really had a path to go public through the traditional IPO route, you know. Um, I mean, if you're if you're Stripe, you're not going to go public with a SPAC. Like, it doesn't make yeah. any sense. So there was sort of this adverse selection where the types of companies that went public in a SPAC, like, they just couldn't have gone through the IPO process. And this was a streamlined way for them to do it. So it, what it meant was the universe of companies that went public via SPAC were generally bad, you know, which I think that people knew at the time. Jared, what? how are you gauging sentiment. When you, when you scroll through Twitter and you see a lot of hot takes, I feel like you're someone who has strong reactions to the sentiment. You really follow how the market is digesting news flow. You, you follow that very closely. How are you digesting things now? I mean, there's the deflation, the, there's the deflation camp, there's the inflation camp, there's people who are saying ARKK is going to go you know, way lower, they're saying it's, it's a great buy. Like, how are you sort of making sense of the, the, the Twitter drama and just the narratives out there? Uh, I think everything is kind of neutral right now, honestly. Uh, everything seems pretty neutral. Um, I will say that the volume on ARC and the unprofitable tax, I mean, that's pretty high. You know, every time I pull up Twitter, I'm seeing, I, I, see, I, I see like 10 charts of ARC, you know, like every time I pull up Twitter. So I actually think that in the short term, we're probably going to have uh, a reversion and we're going to have a rip in growth um, probably sometime in the next couple of weeks. Um, just because I think the negative sentiment around growth has gotten a little bit extreme. But aside from that, I think sentiment is pretty neutral. Well, very interesting. Uh, Jared, you, you have your newsletter you've been writing for a very long time, Daily Dirt Nap. But you also have a new uh, free blog out there. We're going to get these bastards. That is, that is the name. Tell us why it's called that, and also why did you want to have a newsletter that wasn't about finance? Yeah, so we're going to get those bastards. is uh, is my new Substack. It's free. You should sign up at wggtb.substack.com. Uh, it's always going to be free. I'm not going to turn around and start charging for it six months from now. I'm just writing about like like entertaining stuff, you know, culture and music and sex and. You know, and, and it's not safe for work, so you should subscribe on your personal email. You know, but what I uh, uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to have an outlet. There's, you know, I get sick of writing about finance all the time. You know what I mean? Like it's there's a, and you know I put like non market related things yeah. in the daily dirt nap. Cats, but yeah, cats. But there's a limit to how much I can do that. And there's a lot of things I want to say, and I just needed uh, needed needed a platform for it. So um, if you've read the first issue, it's wildly entertaining. Uh, some of it's going to be thought provoking. Some of it'll piss you off. Some of it'll make you laugh laugh hysterically. But it's going to be great. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm definitely I am a subscriber. Um, Jared, thank you so much for joining us. You can uh, you can be found on Twitter at Daily Dirt Nap. 
Uh, that, that's the name of your newsletter. And Jared, you're not only a financial writer of two publications now, but you also, in your free time, are a DJ known by DJ Stochastic, producer of uh, progressive house music. Tell us, I think you're going to have a concert re- up uh, soon? Yeah, April 1st at Do Supper Club. Actually, I haven't released the date yet, but I'll just tell you right now, it's April 1st. It's a Friday night. Uh, it's a it's a great club. It's got a great sound system. It sounds really really good, um, and we've had two parties there. Uh, the Can't first confirm. one I went was, to the first one. Yeah, it was it was a blast. The first one was massive. The second one was smaller, but it was still good. But I'm hoping to have a big turnout on April first. All right. Well, uh, Jared, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Looking forward to talking soon. Yeah. Thank you.